Welcome to the Drew Goodman Podcast, show number 71, and we always start with our great sponsors. How about Boyer's Coffee? Locally owned and operated since 1965, being local, so important to them, being so important to me as well. They've been brewing coffee since 1965 here in Denver, but they're environmentally conscious, they're socially conscious, they give back to the community, and uh, their roasting team taste tests every batch of coffee they make to ensure Sure, their outstanding quality. Again, you can find them at boyerscoffee.com and in your favorite market as well. Steel, fire up those blowers. I've been doing it lately to uh, get leaves out of the way. And I'm, in fact, going over to a friend's house with my uh, steel blower uh, to help them out with their leaves in the backyard. Maybe create some piles and dive into them and roll around. But uh, it is never the off time of year to have steel power tools. S-T-I-H-L, steel power tools. You can find them all over the place because they have 9,000 plus dealers around the country. Whether it's a chainsaw, a blower, a trimmer, or who knows what, you got to do as I've done. Fill up your garage with their products. It's steel, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Drew weighs in on... Drew. You cannot assess Drew Locke singularly on his performance because other players affect his performance. See you. And hats off to Carl Durrell. They're playing much better offensively than I think anybody, maybe even Coach Durrell thought. CSU. So after all the praise we heaped on him after beating Wyoming in the border war, I don't want to take everything back. And John Morosi from Fox Sports, MLB Network, and MLB.com joins Drew to take a deep dive on baseball and your Colorado Rockies. I think that no one's name will be out there again. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. And with that, an official welcome to the Drew Goodman Podcast number 71. I am not going to jump on my soapbox for very long today because we have a a lengthy and I think fascinating interview with a guy I've gotten to know in the baseball business, John Morosi, who is a brilliant writer for MLB.com. You see him on Fox's coverage of regular season and postseason play. He was on the field at the World Series, and you can see him almost on a daily basis on the MLB network. He does extraordinary work. There's nobody that I know of in the business who is as well connected as John Morosi. And we talk about a number of subjects coming up in the interview, including uh, several concerning the Rockies and their two most notable players. So you want to stick around for that. It's coming up in a few minutes. And that'll be our ideal home loans interview of the week. John Morosi. Um, Before we get into uh, other topics, I want to start with the Broncos, and I'm going to make this brief. Drew Locke's taking a lot of heat as we uh, tape this podcast, four interceptions, blowout loss to the Raiders. Keep in mind a couple of things before you make some sweeping indictment of Drew Locke. Number one, the Broncos are, and have been unfortunately for a while now, decidedly mediocre which means they have needs at a number of positions, and you cannot assess Drew Locke singularly on his performance because other players affect his performance. And the number one reason you have to pull back on the reins a little bit 
in making some sort of sweeping assessment or, as I said, indictment of Drew Locke so far is the following. He has played 12 football games in his career. 12. That includes the Raider debacle over the weekend. That's it. We want to appraise quarterbacks so quickly in particular now more so than ever before, and discard them. On to the next one. On to the next one. You have to give these guys an opportunity at the most difficult position, not only to play in football, but maybe the most important and difficult position to truly command in all of team sports. You got to give them time. For every guy that tears it up initially, I can show you three, four, five, a half dozen that we look upon now as really solid NFL quarterbacks that they had a process. They had time to grow. They had periods early in their career in particular, and sometimes even a few years in, where you say, boy, that doesn't look very pretty and hasn't looked very pretty for a few weeks. You know, Derek Carr, people were ready to run him off, playing pretty good football for the Raiders. There's a a whole bunch of them. Aaron Rodgers, I know, sat for a while initially, um, but there's a process to becoming an elite quarterback. I can't sit here right now and tell you Drew Locke's going to be a great player. There are things, and you've heard me say this before, I've mentioned it on the podcast, that there are things I really like about Drew Locke. I think he's a really good athlete. I think he's got moxie. Um, does he need to get better? Does he have to make better decisions? Certainly. But you have to give him the time to do that. And I know as Bronco fans, everyone's frustrated because it's now, what, four straight years after nine games, they're three and six. Not good. But it's not all to be laid at the feet of Drew Locke. And if you keep discarding quarterbacks after watching them play 12 football games or even a couple of years, then you are going to keep spinning your wheels and be in the exact same spot. Continuing uh, in the game of football, last week I had uh, high praise for where the University of Colorado was after their opening defeat of uh, UCLA. And I had high praise for Colorado State after finally winning a rivalry game and playing physical football, something we had not seen a lot of over the last few years. Well, I'll begin with Colorado. They continued their early season success with a nice win out in Palo Alto against Stanford. Um, The one thing that bothers me a little bit is both games, UCLA and Stanford, they had comfortable leads and then kind of had to hang on late. So they have to find ways um, after scoring a good number of points to get that finishing drive and not make things so close late in football games. But through two weeks, uh, you have to give them a lot of credit and hats off to Carl Durrell. They're playing much better offensively than I think anybody, maybe even Coach Durrell thought. And as I said, uh, he was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he thought the defense would be ahead of the offense. And uh, so far, the offense under Sam Neuer has uh, has really looked good. And uh, Broussard has been, what a find. I mean, 200-yard games, two games well over 100 yards running the football. Uh, and they're playing a, a physical brand. So hats off so far to the Buffs. They're going to have uh, this week uh, off, unfortunately, as Arizona State deals with the coronavirus. Now up to Fort Collins. So after all the praise we heaped on them after beating Wyoming in the border war, I don't want to take everything back, but 
They looked miserable against Boise State. That's another team uh, that they can't beat. In fact, they've never beaten Boise State, who carries the mantle as the best team in the Mountain West and maybe the premier team or certainly one of two or three premier teams in the group of five. But they haven't been able to compete with them. I even go back a few years ago when they were up by four touchdowns twice against Boise and they couldn't hold that kind of lead. And there's a phrase that I have always been reluctant to use because I think it is too convenient and, quite frankly, overutilized by people in the media and by fandom. And that is the term outcoached. Sometimes I'm I'm perplexed and say, what does that mean exactly? Because your team got beat, they got outcoached. Well, in this particular instance, the Colorado State football game against Boise State, they were outcoached. And here is why I arrive at that conclusion. They had two, talking about the Rams, punts blocked off their punter's foot. Ryan Stonehouse is an All-American. He had... The punt blocked off his foot. In other words, it wasn't like partially blocked. Both returned for touchdowns. They had a field goal that was blocked and returned 91 yards for a touchdown. And when you looked at the replay of the two punts that were blocked, they had six guys, talking about Boise State, coming on one side of the ball. And Colorado State never adjusted. They had, it wasn't like six on five. It was six on like three bodies. And guys made a straight line to the football to block the punt. That's coaching. They weren't lined up properly, not once, but twice in the same football game. That's reprehensible. And they took a big step back after their win against Wyoming in that blowout loss to Boise State. So kudos to the University of Colorado and and Colorado State uh, still trying to figure things out. And uh, one other note, I'm not going to fall back on, well, you know, Coach Adazio has is, is got to bring his own guys in there. Yes, there there's always truth to that when you have a regime change. However, one thing that Coach Bobo did well, at least according to, you know, 247 and rivals, the, the recruiting sites over the last few years had Colorado State just below Boise State, typically, in their hall in the Mountain West in terms of recruiting. So they have players up there, and they have to do a better job now making the transition. Now, again, Coach Adazio's only coached three games up there, and, and we'll see how it how it plays out over the next couple of years. But after a great win against Wyoming, that performance against uh, Boise State was uh, far too reminiscent of many games we've witnessed over the last few years. The Masters just concluded. Yeah, it's November. so Masters time of year. Man, I was riveted, especially the first couple of days. Tiger on Thursday. I watch every shot. You've heard me say this before. Man, I'm a Tiger fan. I'm like, I think, most of you. There, There is something that is so utterly compelling about Tiger Woods and continues to be compelling. And he went out and shot 68, tied for his lowest round in the first round ever at Augusta. And I was all in. And and his second round was solid. He he left some shots out there, didn't putt particularly well. Nothing went in. Um, You know, third and fourth round, of course, he had the 10 in the fourth round. He ends up, uh, you know, being, I don't want, he's never an afterthought, but he, he ended up well back. Uh, speaking of mental toughness, after he made that 10 on the par three, 
he birdied five of the next six holes. He didn't just cash it in. He, he's remarkable. And, I, and I've said this also before. When I'm looking at all these golfers, and, and I don't think golf has ever been this deep with not just great golfers, but really good athletes, the effect he has had on this sport will linger for years and years and years. You look at Kepka and DeChambeau and Rory and and all these players and virtually every one of them, you're looking at it, it look like, you know, either defensive backs or in the case of like Kepka, he looks like a linebacker, DeChambeau. I mean, these are big, strong and athletic guys and they're playing the game of golf which, with all due respect to the, to the guys that populated the PGA Tour 40 and 50 years ago, they look different, and they're not just simply products uh, of wealth in, in the country club um, families that, that allowed them to play golf on a regular basis. So uh, I, I really enjoyed the Masters, and I'm thrilled that you know in less than six months we get to watch the Masters again in the uh, more... Uh, typical time of year in early April. So uh, I look forward to that. And, and hats off to uh, to DJ. Dustin Johnson was great. Uh, speaking of guys who are athletic, uh, he's the number one player in the world. He played like it, 20 under par to win Augusta. So that was, uh, that was certainly fun to watch. All right. Without further ado, I want to take you to our Ideal Home Loans interview of the week. From uh, MLB.com, from MLB Network, and from Fox Sports, one of the brightest uh, baseball journalists in the business, John Morosi. Well, John, let me start here. This was the oddest of years, 2020, naturally. And, and now that you've uh, been removed from the World Series and the coverage and you're, you're delving into the offseason, which we'll get to in a moment, how would you characterize you know, what transpired in the 60 games and then the, in the postseason? And, and quite honestly, were you shocked that we were able to get through it? Well, Drew, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. Uh, it, it was such a unique year, as has been said in every context of American life by, by everyone. Uh, but I think as, as I've experienced it, number one, certainly like a lot of people, I was nervous at different times that we might not be able to finish, that we might not even get started, depending on how things went over the course of the summer. But uh once once I saw MLB be able to, to learn and adapt after the Marlins and the Cardinals outbreaks early in the season, that to me was reassuring. Uh, as, as concerning as it was in the moment, and obviously it was an incredibly worrisome situation, once I realized that MLB was comfortable postponing games for however long it took to ensure player safety, then I knew that, that this had a chance. And certainly as time went on, it became a good chance. And then in the end, a great chance that it was able to to win it. So I, I was lucky, Drew, to be able to to be living here in, in Michigan, in the Midwest, and and drive to a fair amount of games. Uh, my, my prism of the year was MLB Network, uh, morning shows, of course, uh, MLB Central largely, uh, and then uh, during during later on segments, of course, that uh, would, would join shows as needed. But largely it was... My MLB Central work, and then a lot of driving around the Midwest uh, to to be the sideline reporter on uh, a YouTube broadcast or an MLB Showcase broadcast, MLB Network. So I saw Cincinnati twice. I was in Detroit once for a YouTube game. I was in Chicago a couple times, Milwaukee once. I even drove as far as St. Louis. 
So it was a lot of time driving, and then eventually, towards the end of the year, I, I finally took a couple flights, so one to Minneapolis, and then, of course, to Texas for the playoffs. But it was just a, a gradual experience of testing the limits a little bit, getting accustomed to what a day at the ballpark meant, um, what it meant to go through the, the different protocols. And I would say that at every step of the way, Drew, I, I felt really comfortable. I think that MLB did a tremendous job of, uh, in the regular season, uh, making sure that we were all stationed in a safe place to be able to do our jobs and report on the game as we were seeing it without uh, risking health to 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 certainly an, an, an extreme extent. It was, I think it was everything was done in, in a very, very safe manner, and, and I felt I felt personally very safe when I traveled because I, I knew that great amounts of care had been taken by MLB and by the players to ensure the health of everybody uh, as much as they could during the course of the season. I want to jump right to the World Series, John. What what was your takeaway uh, of the quality of play and the overall season from, I think there were people initially who said, well, this season will always have an asterisk next to it because it was 60 games. The awards will have an asterisk. My takeaway is what what these guys had to endure makes it probably extra special. And, and I think... You know, yes, it was 60 games. We'll all know that, just like we knew about strike-shortened years in the past. Um, but but this was legitimate. Would you concur? Absolutely. And I would say, Drew, that uh, as one of the handful of reporters who was lucky to be on the field when it ended, um, to, to see Julio Urias and Victor Gonzalez embracing at the mound in tears because of what they had both endured to get to that point, uh, Julio shared with me after – the game, and of course, after he gets the last out and becomes uh, the the hero in many ways of of the Dodgers' run, um, he he said to me that he had multiple relatives who had died in Mexico during the year of COVID nineteen. Uh, I think he it was two great uncles and one great aunt who had passed away, and um, he said that to me in Spanish on the field uh, moments after he had won the World Series, just about what the year was like for him and. And when you see Julio crying in that in that moment and embracing Victor Gonzalez, his countryman who we've been through so much with since they both signed in the same year in 2012 with the Dodgers, and then to have Julio tell me that about his family, Drew, I, I, you know, I don't know how anyone could could say that this was a uh, an asterisk sort of year or, or that it deserves any any sort of parentheticals to explain what was going on. I mean, we all realized it was it was a 60 game season. But the caliber of play in the postseason, I thought, was extremely high. It looked no different to me uh, from the standpoint of the on-field play than any other postseason. Obviously, there were maybe earlier and a higher number of pitching changes, but that's that's baseball in 2020, apart from uh, any sort of competitive question. Uh, it, it, to me, the, the caliber of play was high. The players, I thought, were extraordinary. You think about the story of a Rosarena, everything that he did during the course of the postseason, extraordinary performance by him. Kershaw, the narrative involving him and what he was able to do for the Dodgers there in the World Series as well. This, this postseason had all the storylines you would want from a strictly on-field perspective. Freddie Freeman, who goes on to win the MVP, has just a tremendous run of success for him and, and where the country and the world get a chance to really appreciate one of the great stars of our time. It, it had everything for me, Drew, and, and, I, and I think that uh, the players and, and the front office people and the MLB communications staff and the commissioner's office staff, everybody that was involved in in, in having this occur, and of course the broadcasters at, at Fox and TBS did such a great job during the course of the LCS and the World Series. It was, it was just a really well done 
uh, operation from from start to finish, I believe. And yes, the, the Turner thing was obviously a, a a difficult way for it to end, but I think overall it's important to put in perspective just the incredible Herculean efforts made by so many people during the course of the month of October, and certainly long before that as well. Yeah, I would agree. I said this, uh, you know, several times on social media and the podcast. I, I thoroughly enjoyed sitting back and watching uh, the postseason. And yes, we were devoid of fans in large measure. Uh, however, the play on the field was outstanding, and it was not short of, of drama. And it wasn't short of one narrative uh, at, at the very end that I thought was was fascinating because we are in this heavy analytics. Uh, phase of not just baseball, but really analytics play such a large part uh, in, in all sports now. Uh, but the you know now celebrated uh, removal of Blake Snell by Kevin Cash, who went on and rightfully so, in my opinion, to be the, the American League Manager of the Year. Do you think, in any way, shape, or form, that uh, there'll be a, a, a philosophical fallout? That, that that there's a little bit of pushback with analytics based on what occurred. And, of course, we don't know, had had he left him in, what would have transpired. But will there be any pushback, or will this just be a footnote uh, on the 2020 series? It's a great question, Drew. I think very possibly there will be. And I, I think we need to look no further than the Tony La Russa hiring by the White Sox, as, of course, it happened days after the end of the World Series. And it, it seemed to me that it was a... Uh, and there are other reasons, of course, that went into it, and, and obviously other considerations that are now being dealt with by the White Sox. But I think on on some level, this was a a statement made by a playoff team, the White Sox, that that more of an older approach to the bullpen, to game management, was appropriate in in 2021. And and Drew, you, you and I have both, uh, been, you know, been blessed to be around the game for a long time, and we see trends come and go. And and it, oftentimes it appears that whatever trend uh, runs in one direction, there's always sort of the counter movement against it. And and perhaps we're starting to see this now. Do we see other other teams go against the grain a little bit? Do we see teams? And this this is the, the tough part about this free agent class. And, and the, the difficulty for teams in, in, in spending what they want to spend right now because of the pandemic, in the sense that if, if it was a normal year from a standpoint of spending, would we see teams come out already by now of season and sign a, a number of, of veteran starting pitchers who give you length? I'm thinking of a Morton, obviously Bowers, the top of the class, uh, but even a Lester, of course, is, is not the but a very credible picture, would you see a move of move towards those types of signings to build out your rotation with a lot of name brand guys as opposed to more of the Rays approach, which is, yeah, you have a handful of, of elite pitchers, but then you're building around uh, openers, bulk innings guys, however you want to distinguish the, the pitchers. We saw, we've seen the, the Brewers do a similar approach here in recent years. Without ever really going big to spend on a free agent pitcher, they've they've tried to promote from within, of course. And Woodruff has really stepped into that role, and, and Burns has been really good at times as well. But it, it's a really interesting way to try to build a pitching staff. And and I, I do think that if this were a normal time, we would see 
a lot of teams being especially aggressive in that regard to look for those kinds of pitchers. And as a result, I'd be careful to extrapolate too much between the movement of teams this winter. But I do think that in general, we could be poised for a a bit of a countercultural shift when it comes to how you use your starting pitchers. And and the way I, the way I see it, Drew, is it's totally healthy uh, that the game always has those ebbs and flows from a philosophical perspective. Given the losses, and they're 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 pretty clear cut, uh, you know, in, in collectively in the billions of dollars. And though we have, as we tape this, received some very encouraging news um, from Moderna and from Pfizer about uh, hopefully uh, imminent uh, vaccines uh, that will be available to the public. And you know, it's going to take a, a, a you know quite a while, one would assume, to disperse this not only nationally but worldwide. Uh, clearly, uh, will there be a greater uh, bridge, a void between the haves and I don't want to call them the have-nots among the owners, but the the large market teams and the and the teams we that always fall into the mid-market category when it comes to free agency, when it comes to uh, taking on uh, dollars in terms of contracts. Yes, I believe we will. I think that it may take some time to sift through who those teams are. Uh, it, to me, the, the most instructive approach might well be to take whatever the opening day payrolls were in 2019, for example, and then compare them to what they are in 2020. And how and how many teams go down? I suspect a number of them will. Um, do some maintain where they were at? Perhaps some will be able to do that, but. I think that there are so many variables, Drew, that it's hard to make a, a blanket statement that we expect the payrolls to all roll back by 10% or 20% relative to the full 2019 numbers, what they were. But I think what, a, a number of factors are in play here. Number one, where you are in your competitive window. I think for a team like the Toronto Blue Jays, for example, they're going to keep spending because their overall books were quite good to begin with. They didn't have a lot of bad money. And they're about to get good. They've got a young base of position players, so now is the time. We've already seen them sign Robbie Ray. Now is the time to, to make those targeted signings to build up your pitching to go along with your group of young position players. And maybe even they make a move for someone like a Lindor. But I, I think they're a, they're a team, and obviously they're our one Canadian team, and so perhaps economically speaking, that they're a major owned by a major communications company in, in Canada. Are they leveraged differently than many owners in the U.S.? Uh, quite literally, yes, they are. But uh, I think that we have to wait and see. It, it depends on market size. depends on, you know, I mentioned the Jays, their competitive window. It depends on that for clubs. And also it depends on, from an ownership perspective, what your what your other business was that made you wealthy enough to own a baseball team. If you know, if you're, if you're, interestingly, if you're, uh, if you have two holdings, if you, which this is obviously a theoretical example and not really true because uh, I'm not sure anybody has something quite as simple as this, but the example is if you, if you were two things, a hedge manager and a baseball team owner, and those are the two things that you had, and all your money was either those two things and plus your house. But the, 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 when you look at the, the overall market this year, the reality is, is the S&P is, is up. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of people that made actually a decent amount of money in, in the markets this year. So, so, so that person, that owner, obviously there's some long-term uncertainty, but they may be able to, to – 
still spend as they normally spend. But if you're in a in the sector of the economy that suffered dramatic reductions in sales and, and an incredible disruption during the course of 2020, maybe you can't. So I, I think there are so many variables, what your outside businesses are, market size, where you're on your competitive window, what your payroll looks like in advance. But I think all these factors adding up uh, are, are putting you now to the point where, you know, clubs that have a player like a Francisco Lindor with, with Cleveland, there's a lot of, I think, superstar players who are going to be available, and it's going to make for, I, I think, probably an initially slow-moving offseason as, as teams discern you know, how many fans they might be able to have next year, what that means to the bottom line. There's, just, there's a lot of uncertainty, and I would say, Drew, that from talking to executives in recent years, this is true in any business, but when, when there is uncertainty, it's hard to make large capital investments, and the signing of a major free agent is exactly that, and I think that's, to me, one of the big questions that we, we don't even quite know the answer yet to how, how much risk tolerance there is going to be by a lot of clubs right now. You know, I'm going to ask you a question, John, and you're going to answer this obviously from afar, but you know so many executives in baseball. Nobody, you know, studies the game more than, than you do in the number of uh, areas in which you provide information for fans. But regionally here uh, in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains, the Rockies typically keep things close to the vest. Um, Dick Monfort was on record a year plus ago as saying, they were going to be quiet leading into 2020 from a payroll standpoint, but things opened up quite a bit after 2020. Now, obviously, all of that, JP, is pre-pandemic. Um, from what you've been able to view, uh, what will the Rockies do? And would you be surprised if they floated Nolan Arenado again? Or even Trevor Story, who, as you're well aware, will be a free agent at the end of 2020. And I guess it's a two-pronged question. What would the market be for either one of those guys? Well, it's a great question, Drew, and I think it's a really crucial one, obviously, from a Rockies perspective. I, I, I think that Nolan's name will be out there again. Um, and it's going to be, I think, to those teams that whether it's the the Cardinals who we talked so much about last last year in that in that context, uh, I'm sure certainly a couple other clubs, maybe the Boston Red Sox, teams that have a real reason based on the way this year ended to, to really change the conversation around around their club and and teams that have shown in the past the ability to add payroll and those that believe that two to three years down the line that that their business will look like it did in 2019. And I think that's going to be true in a town like St. Louis. It'll be true in a town like Boston, um, just based on the the, the 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 strong brand that those clubs have in those markets. And so I, I think that the answer is yes. I could see Nolan having a lot of appeal. I think Story as well. Story, uh, interestingly, do you if you're the Rockies, do you wait to see what happens with Lindor? I think that if I'm Jeff Breidich right now, I am I am. If, if I'm reading a report, and obviously Jeff has more information than I do, but if, if I'm reading reports and if I'm seeing Team X being interested in Lindor, I'm calling up that GM right now. And I'm, I, am, I am shadowing the, the Lindor process 100%, step for step, and, and making sure that, that, that those clubs are aware that, yeah, for the right price, we, we would talk about story, and here's what it would take. And just constantly – mentioning what those possibilities are because uh, when you consider how much control you still have uh, obviously it's it's the same they're in the same service class 
um, which makes it unique. And, and I, I think that whatever you're willing to pay for Lindor, goodness, I, I would think you would also be willing to pay for Story. Maybe even uh, based on the way Trevor played last year, maybe you're even willing to pay more. It just depends on the club and, and what they need. But I, I think Trevor Story is a tremendous player, someone that, that I still don't think gets the credit that he deserves nationally for being as great as he is. And so I think that with, with Nolan and with Trevor, I think both are available to some extent. And I would also add that, that from a pitching perspective, there's not a lot of teams out there that have, I, I think, two guys that would potentially draw in the level of interest of, of a Sensatella and Gray in the same rotation. Of course, Gray is also coming up on free agency. Um, and, and I think that we have to wait and see what the arbitration uh, numbers look like for pitchers, broadly speaking, and, and how many players might get Tendered. I think we're seeing some significant names that could be non-tendered. So I, I think that for me, Drew, there's just as much of an argument if I'm the Rockies to put the names of, uh, I think, of Sensatella and Gray out there just as much as I would if I was going to put the names out there of, of Nolan Arenado and Trevor Story. Yeah, the, the risky part about any trade is, you know, when, when you want to restock your farm system, there is an unknown where people like Trevor Story, players like Nolan Arenado, Francisco Lindor, they're known quantities. They have done it. They've done it at a high level for a long period of time. And everybody else is a prospect, which can be a very dirty word two years down the road when they become a suspect. Very well said. And I think that's an excellent point. That's the peril of making trades like this. I, I would think, you know, in, in the industry, just as I'm thinking more about what the Rockies could do here, uh, I, I think Sensatella is a better pitcher than people realize, broadly speaking. I think his um, the, 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 the notoriety that he's gotten has never quite risen to the level of what he can do. I think when you look at the big picture and, and you've got a pitcher who's, whose RA was in the mid-threes at Coors, uh, throwing 73 innings in, in, in those over those 60 games, that, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good stat line. And he does not walk a lot of guys. Uh, he doesn't strike out a lot of guys, but he's not going to be someone that, that walks you into trouble. And I think that if you put him in a, a good pitching park with a good defense, I, I would think a team like, even like the Angels, and I think given where they're at, of course, new GM in, in Perry Manassi, and I think that's a club that I could see being a really nice fit to, to get – um, sent to tell in, in that situation. So I, I think overall there's a lot to look into from a Rockies perspective. They're going to have to be honest about their assessment here and look at the big picture and say, what chances do we have right now of, of being able to, to equal the, the, the performance of a club like the Dodgers or the Padres? And I think candidly at the moment, Drew, they're, they're, they're pretty far behind both of them as I look at them today. And I think if that's, if that's your approach, you probably have to make that hard decision to, to, to maybe get a little bit younger and, and make the kind of trades like A.J. Preller made for the Padres years ago. It's not a fun thing for a fan base or a GM to go through, but it's often the right way to do it. And I think that we saw with the Padres and their success. We saw with the Marlins and their success and the trades they made. There's a lot of people in the industry that were, were having a lot of punchlines about the the Yelich trade and, and trading Ozuna, and trading Real Muto at different times. And obviously the Yelich trade has worked out much better for Milwaukee than it has for Miami. But look at the players they've got. Alcantara, the, what, what he has done for them. Sixto Sanchez. Those are players that came over in those deals when they moved away uh, some of the veteran uh, players. So the, they made the playoffs this past year, I think, because of some of the players they got back in those deals. And, and if I'm a Rocky fan, I would be 
looking to those examples and saying, you know what, it sometimes is not the worst thing to hit the reset button and, and also just acknowledge how good the teams are in front of you, that the Rockies could improve but not really see it in their record because you've got to play all those games against really two of the best three or four teams in the game in the Dodgers and the Padres. Yeah, economically, it's not always the worst thing to be middle class, but in professional sports, particularly baseball, um, it, it can be very difficult if you are decidedly mediocre where you know you, you spend a good amount of money and you're not quite good enough and you're not really poor. So from a draft pick standpoint, you're in the middle. Re- really tough place to be. I, I think what makes the Rockies predicament, if you will, even more unique, JP, is that their rotation in this sport, as we all know, will always be about pitching at the end of the day. However, you utilize your pitchers, whether you know they're they're traditional starters from a long time ago and they try to get six, seven innings, or if you you piecemeal it with a great and deep bullpen, as we saw Tampa do. But having said that, when you look at not just the aforementioned Senzatella and John Gray, but Kyle Freeland, great bounce back year, pitched far more like he did when he was a uh, a Cy Young finalist two years ago, and also I think one of the more underrated starters, you know, in all of baseball for the Rockies, uh, you know, at the very top of, the, of their rotation, Herman Marcus. So they have a rotation, and yet they don't have the other pieces. So it's it's kind of a difficult situation. It is, and that's where Drew. It's interesting that that you know people look at the what has been the identity of the Rockies as a club for so long with the offense and, and Coors Field, and we understand the, the heritage of the, the organization from that standpoint. But to your point, that hasn't lined up with the reality in terms of the offense. They just simply haven't scored enough runs in, in, in recent years, and, and you really start to think about where they're at from a standpoint of run scoring, and, and it's been it's been a while. They, they, they've only topped 800 runs, I think, three times in the last – decade and that was obviously a number that they would hit routinely uh back in in, in the day and, and obviously the run scoring environment's a little different now than it was in you know 20 years ago but still that's that's a number that you would expect to be able to hit with a pretty good consistent uh level and and yet the runs allowed i think you look at the 2019 season they were out by about 150 runs and it's just that's their 130 runs right it's just it's hard to hard to win that way i i think that their their offense, and that's the difficult part. If you if you move Story and or Arenado, what are you left with offensively, and and what does the offense look like? And similarly, if, if you trade one of those guys, then are you kind of in that same middle area that you referred to, and and is the one that gets left behind just not seeing any pitches to hit at all, and, and just getting pitched around left and right, and they'll say, okay, well, we'll walk Nolan or we'll walk Story, and then we'll deal with the rest of the group and. And, and then it's going to be up to McMahon and, and, and Blackman and, and, and kind of the, the rest of the core to really um, win games for the Rockies offensively. So I think that that's going to be the big question. And, and certainly there, there have been some good stories. I think McMahon's a, a really good player. Um, I, I think he's a, a, a nice everyday player on a, on a very good club, which is what the Rockies have been at different times in the last four or five years. But I, I think overall just some more offense needed at the key spots and, and, uh, and, and also some more – I think some more athleticism. I think that's when you look at what they could do on the bases. Um, this is a team that, and we saw this certainly in the in the division series against the Brewers a couple of years ago. It was a team that didn't really have a lot of other ways to score runs once they ran up against a good pitching staff in Milwaukee. They just, they just didn't. They couldn't. They couldn't produce. And I think that's that's the big thing. How do you score runs against quality pitching? And the answer has been too often for the Rockies. 
They just haven't been able to do it. And 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 on the division with the Dodgers and with the Padres and, and their group, I think getting better by the year in San Diego and Lamette, what a breakthrough he had this season. If you can't if you can't score runs against good pitching, you're just you're just not going to win games in that division. It's just that the pitching is too good. And and I think that to me is going to be the big test. How how much better can they get as a group? And, and and by the way, the Giants are are improving, and they're probably going to spend some money this winter. So I, I think that it's, it's it's that honest moment of self evaluation where, to your point, the pitching actually on their best days. You're right, Marquez underrated, Freeland big time bounce back after after a disappointing 2019. I, I think there are some nice building blocks on the pitching side, but offensively, it's really become a perplexing situation why they've struggled to score runs so much the last couple of years. Yeah, you know that that was so well put, almost as if you were uh, you know spending all of your time in in Denver and not uh, viewing twenty nine other clubs as well. But you hit the nail on the head, and I think so many people uh, who are just you know maybe passing baseball enthusiasts just assume that the Rockies are good offensively, and um, and, and it's been quite the contrary. You have. You know, as you said, you have two superstars and you have a really good hitter in Blackman and then a lot of empty at-bats and young players who are trying to figure it out. So I thought that was, you know, exceptionally well stated. We're going to continue on with John Morosi in a moment. But first, this from uh, our good friends at Ideal Home Loans. If you're looking to save money, and who the heck isn't these days, you got to give my friends at Ideal Home Loans a call. 303-867-7000. They have saved me uh, hundreds and hundreds of dollars through the years, and they can do the same for you. So many folks have used them. So many folks have been thrilled that they have. Uh, once again, the phone number is 303-867-7000. If you're buying a new home, if you're refinancing, if you're consolidating debt, Ideal Home Loans is the place to go. 303-867-7000. Brent Ivinson and his team will take great care of you. And now more with uh, MLB.com, MLB Network, and Fox Sports' John Morosi. I want, to, I want to transition to something that's given me great concern, not only as it played out, oh, four, five, six months ago, but also kind of peeking ahead, and that is the impending uh, CBA negotiations. Um, I, I found it almost appalling at times um, and insensitive to where we were as a world, um, the public uh, negotiation and... Uh, how that played out uh, between the Players Association and the owners uh, in just trying to get on the field in 2020 and the continuing, it seems, antipathy between these two parties. Will that be eased? Do you think that they understood uh, basically how unsavory that looked um, and, and we'll be able to reflect upon that and, and utilize that to come to some sort of agreement at some point in time in 2021, or will it be like it always has been, where two sides that, that really don't trust one another? Well, Drew, that's a key question, a great question. I, I think that I'm going to be the optimist here and say that what everybody went through this past year, I hope, has given us all a measure of perspective and has made us realize uh, how much we need each other, and that's really a, a broad uh, societal statement too. But I, I think in, the, in this world, in the baseball world, the players need the owners and vice versa. They, they, they need them to make this work. And, and I had a person in the industry, a prominent agent, tell me at one point in time in the summer that, you know, as negative as things were, that things got to be so negative 
that that they probably realize that they simply cannot afford to have a uh, a a CBA uh, work stoppage, you know, a, a strike lock, whatever it would be. That simply they cannot afford to do it, and that as a result, it's that mentality of okay, whatever whatever the deal is going to be, we're going to make the deal. It's not, you know, maybe we're not both going to be happy about it, thrilled about it, but we've got to do it for the good of the sport, based on the way things are playing out. I also think Drew that that one significant variable that we don't yet know is how things come back in 2021, and I, I don't think that we're going to see, for example there being any sort of announcement on February 15th that the next CBA has been signed a year in advance and that we're all in good shape and that, you know, labor peace has been ensured for the next five or ten years. I I just don't think we're going to see that. I think it it will go on during the course of the year. But but I I also think, Drew, that as we talk about that, there will be real-time data that the sides are getting here, what the players feel, uh, obviously how free agency goes this winter, um, how comfortable they are with a with, with uh, tolerating the risk of a of a labor stoppage. Obviously, a lot of them uh, missed what they would normally be getting from the standpoint of their pay this year, uh, and wh- how does that affect their overall financial willingness to to have a work stoppage of some kind in the future? There's a lot of variables, but I, I really think Drew, we're going to find out in 2021. Let's say that. Let's be optimistic and say, okay, there, let's hope that there will be a, a vaccine in the first quarter of the year. The, the question will then be, okay, how quickly do fans return in, in large numbers? Who comes back? What are the age demographics of the people that come back to the ballpark? Uh, there's a lot of societal questions that we don't know the answer to. And if, uh, and if parks are not as full as what the players and owners hope they will be in July, in August of 2021, how do they react? How does that change the the, the bargaining power of both clubs, both sides? I, I think that the the obviously the individual teams, television ratings, that's going to be part of the equation as well. But I, I think to me, Drew, and, and it's something that I don't know. Uh, I don't know that anybody really knows. What are the ballparks going to look like? How many people are going to want to be comfortable coming back? What safeguards are required by MLB to make people feel comfortable coming back? Um, what is their overall risk tolerance? How expensive is it? That's the other part of this overall equation. You know, well, we never used to think about this, but the player payroll is one cost of a club. But what's the cost going to be for every team to ensure the safety of the spectators of the ballpark in terms of sanitizing stations, in terms of spacing people out, in terms of how many concession stands can be open and in what fashion, spacing them out, uh, what segments of the stadium are going to be open. These are all questions that we never had to think about before, but now teams will have to think about. And I, I think that the infrastructure required to, to operate safely is a major, major line item. And I think that uh, it's going to be important for teams to really uh, embrace that responsibility and also demonstrate to the players that, listen, we used to not have to spend this money, but now we have to spend X number of dollars just to ensure the safety of the players and also the safety of, of the fans. That's going to be a significant line item that, that is going to have to be reckoned with because, uh, obviously, as we hope that things look more normal in 2021, I think we all realize that it's not going to be totally normal, and, and we're going to have to constantly make some adjustments to, to ensure health. And I think baseball, like all industries, is going to have to adapt and, and put in the necessary costs to make that a realistic 
journey for their customers. You know, real quick, crystal ball, another crystal ball question. And we touched on the fact that uh, we, we've gotten good news in the last week about potential vaccines. Uh, but clearly, you know, ownership's appetite to play in front of uh, either no crowd or small crowd is not going to be the same as what they got through in 60 games. Will the season begin on April 1st as, as you and I sit here and chat in mid-November? Uh, great question. I, I, I don't know. I think that it's, all, uh, that it's all on the table in terms of moving that date back. Um, I think one thing that, you know, as, as baseball went through to, to sort of game plan this out, if, if we're talking in February – and if the if they say listen by March one, ten percent of the population will have a vaccine, but by April one, like ninety percent of it will have the vaccine. I'm just that's just a, I'm just theoretically saying that. I, or or if in fact that's the, that's the difference between April one and May one. I, I think if it's if it's a matter of a month here or there, then I think you would be. I would I would suggest. Uh, open-minded to to moving things back, moving back spring training potentially, obviously having maybe smaller numbers of people initially at spring training, keeping them maybe in different locations, uh, maybe pitchers here, hitters there, a lot of different ways to do it uh, to try to uh, minimize the risk of an outbreak. I, I, but I, I think that it's that it's possible that, that the season will be delayed, but I think it's all going to depend on what what are you waiting for? What is what is the what is the one month benefit? Of of waiting, I, I don't know that you'll be able to delay it much more than a month, given what we saw worked this year. Um, but I, I think that if you were to say, okay, let's start the season on May one instead of April one, and you'll play in your home parks the regular season ending at the end of October, and then we do a similar um, we do a similar bubble or or neutral site format for a November playoff, expecting that if if the, the the population is has a good number of, of vaccinations by the fall, that we're not going to have to worry about seasonal spikes by then. We hope optimistically. I think that to me, it's, it's a two pronged um, it's a two pronged decision. It's not just what is the benefit of waiting a month on the front end, but it's also what is the delta of the of the of the risk of playing a month deeper, and what does that look like? If if, if there's if the science says, hey, listen. By May 1, we're going to be in great shape, and we're in such great shape by May 1 that that we believe that playing in November would not be near the risk that it would have been to play in November this year, then maybe you do bounce it back a, a month. Because I, I do think for a lot of owners, Drew, they're going to want as many months and as many days possible of a good percentage of vaccinations out there in, in society to help make their customers feel comfortable about coming back to the ballpark. Yeah. Hey, hey, John, real quick, I want to segue to one thing. I'm chuckling uh, here because going through my mind, uh, I, I really enjoyed Keith Law's recent piece about some of the rule changes and things he would keep. And, and I have always been more of a traditionalist. I was a National League guy growing up in New York, a, a Mets fan, and, and now I'm, I'm done with the you know pitchers hitting. I mean, heck, guys who are paid to hit and, and practice that every day can't hit the great pitching uh, today. So the last thing I want to do is you know is, is to see you know some 
pitcher come up and hit. So I'm good with the DH. But the reason uh, I, I was chuckling is I'm also good with the expanded playoffs because we have to evolve. And I think Keith Law I- invoked Moses and, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments written on a tablet. This is baseball. It is sport. And, and we can change the rules. So I think any time that you can work Moses into a baseball piece, I found that, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that was uh, that was quite, quite good. But um, I'm, are you OK with, you know, maybe not eight more teams in each league, but but seven and you keep more teams, fan bases involved and interested in June, July and August. than perhaps they would have been if we had a smaller field. Without question, hundred percent, Drew. I am I am on board with this, and and it starts with what you said about it helping uh, fans stay engaged, larger numbers of them across the country. Uh, I think that especially as as you consider what we just described about about the motivation to get to the ballpark, and and I think we're all in in American life now. In in the months to come, we're going to have that that question of risk tolerance and how comfortable we are and, and what what the payoff is to every decision that we make in terms of what we do. And uh, I, I think that if you're if you're asking someone, hey, are you going to go to the ballgame today, it's a little different question, I think, in terms of your your willingness to go just from a human standpoint if, if the game means something, if it means a lot. And I think that the, the more meaningful games you can have, the better it is. And, and I think that having a seven-team in each league arrangement, I, I think that might be the, the right number. Uh, I, I don't think it cheapens the regular season at all. I think, if anything, it, it incentivizes teams to chase that, that top seed, which gives you the buy. I, I think there's, there's a lot to like about doing things that way. And plus, Drew, I, I come back to this a lot, that, that when you add the two different teams, uh, if, if we imagine the seven-team format, if you add two teams, then that, that changes manifestly and permanently, as long as the situation exists in that way, the, the algorithms that drive the player valuations and who spends what money. I can't stress enough that when you talk with teams now that they frequently will cite, well, we're not sure that we're going to spend as much on this particular position this year because of where we're at with our with our win curve, where we feel we are uh, the, the marginal cost of that additional player in free agency versus the expected output of that player versus what that means for your for your win total. If you're a 50 win team and you want to make a, a two million dollar upgrade because you think the player is going to be 20 percent more more productive, is that really worth it to go from 51 wins to 55 wins? Probably not. But you look at the teams that are in that middle group. And and if you're a 74-win team and you believe you can get to 83 with a couple of targeted moves, then you're going to spend some money. And so I think, Drew, as much as a seven-team in each league format makes sense for the excitement that you feel in, in, in September or, or August and certainly in, in October, that to me is just as much for what happens in November, December, and January and the way that the additional playoff spots – will motivate teams to be more aggressive, to be more exciting, to take some more chances, to invest at the right times of year. Because if you do that and you see that, oh, my gosh, if I get five more wins here, I'm in the playoffs, you're going to see a lot more teams feeling comfortable investing additional money, and it's going to result in a better product and and I think more excitement and more markets around the game. 
And, and it also helps local television as well, which, uh, you, know, that, you know, and then the, the contracts become hopefully more lucrative, uh, you know, if ratings are, are, you know, year in and year out, uh, more solid, clearly. Hey, JP, as I let you go, what are you working on uh, as there won't be formal winter meetings, but uh, what are you working on day to day, whether in writing or uh, or in the uh, electronic media form? Yeah, well, thanks for asking, Drew. Uh, it's obviously, to your point, the time of year when I'm usually looking forward to the winter meetings and seeing everybody in one place. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year. The GM meetings I also love, and of course they would have been last week, I believe. Uh, so I miss that as well, and just being able to see everybody. But so for me, I, I think that it's it's those early days of free agency still. I feel uh, as as a lot of hirings are still happening. Well, we're waiting on what the Mets are going to do, and you mentioned uh, New York and. Uh, National League Baseball and that great city and, and, and what they have in store for us. I, I think following along in the Mets and who they're able to hire uh, in the office and what that means for their spending is going to be one of the great stories of the whole offseason. Do they jump in and, and trade for a Lindor? Do they sign a Real Muto? Do they sign a Trevor Bauer? Clearly, Steve Cohen wants to make an impact right away, and, and I'm all for it. I think that's great for the game when you've got an owner coming in who wants to make his impact right away. So, I, I think that the Mets are going to drive a lot of the conversation. If you name a superstar player, they've probably had a conversation about him. I'll mention George Springer in that context, too. So there's, there's lots to follow, I think, with the New York Mets. The Lindor trade, I think, is there. Uh, I think it will happen. Trevor Bauer, what, what happens with his free agency, I mentioned with him as being a possibility for the Mets. But I think we'll see that select group of teams, how aggressive do the Blue Jays get. They, they seem to be making a lot of noise here early on. Um, the Cardinals, how do they answer uh, watching Randy Rosarena become a postseason legend uh, when they let him go in that trade a year ago? Uh, how do they answer? What, what do they add to their club? So, And I think certainly for the Rockies, I, I'll watch very carefully Nolan and, and Trevor's story and also the pitching. What, what do they do there? Do they make something that looks like a, a rebuilding posture here? Or uh, are, are they going to try to compete with the, with the Padres and Dodgers? So I think a lot of really unique questions right now around the game, Drew, and I'll, I'll be, you know, usually I'm doing it from location, but uh, very lucky to have, uh, you know, the, the TV studio here at the house. I can uh, be here with, with my daughters and, and uh, do the best job I can to stay plugged in from a distance and, and, and work on the MLB Network shows, of course, hot soap most often in the morning. So uh, really lucky to be able to, to keep working here, Drew, and, and just uh, really grateful. I think that's been my biggest word of the year, as, as we've all had a lot of things to think about uh, in, across our country this year. I think gratitude right now as we end the year and look at the holidays, um, it's, it's a good time, I hope, for us to, to sit back and, and reflect on things that still have to change, but also things that we can be grateful for. And, and for me, it's time with family and, and uh, being able to be with my kids is, uh, is the most important thing of, of all. So, so to, to the extent that being home more often gives, gives me more time with, with my daughters, uh, really uh, blessed for that, for that to be the case. Yeah, exceptionally well put. We've all, we've all learned uh, what truly a, a home studio uh, looks and feels like here in, in our business in the last uh, in the last several months. Hey, really quickly, you made me laugh because I, I thought of if, if Trevor Blauer does happen to blow out at some point, and I certainly hope that that doesn't happen. He has a long and uh, distinguished career and builds on what he uh, what he did this year. But clearly, he, he's the best marketer uh, of, a, of a, an athlete himself. I've ever seen, right? Well, his his brand has been very impressive, and certainly I, I'll, I'll say that there have been times, obviously, I may have uh, disagreed with approaches that he has taken at, at times. 
But I think it's important to say this, that at a time when we're in the game and we say we want players to market themselves better, we want them to help promote the game, promote themselves, promote the next generation of stars, we cannot, we in the media, we who are on social media, we cannot say, hey, show more of yourself, show more of your personality, but then edit or try to edit what they're saying. That, that We can't do that. It's either, it's either okay or it's not. And I'm someone that, that generally believes, whether it's flipping your bat on, uh, on the field or uh, getting into a testy exchange on social media, if that's what you want to do, uh, I, I cannot separate an expression of one's genuine self from the other and say that, well, this is okay and this is not okay. I'm not going to referee that. I can't, and I shouldn't. Uh, it, it's, it's for me to um, to allow them the space to be themselves. We can certainly talk about it and, and critique it if you want about it, if you agree with this point or not, but I, I, I am never, ever going to step and say, well, stop being yourself and don't do that. That's 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 never going to come from me. I've, I am, I'm I'm not the person to be able to say that. I'm just a, uh, I'm just a broadcaster myself and, and, and trying my best to, to, to express what, what comes to my mind and what's in my heart uh, on a daily basis. And I, and I appreciate how hard that can be for people to be authentic in, in, a, in a public setting. So uh, I, 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 I want to let Trevor be Trevor. I want to let uh, Tim Anderson be himself. I want to let everybody be their full authentic selves that they are in the game, bring all that personality. And I think what Trevor has shown, Drew, is that when you, when you are yourself, you will connect with people. People will have an opinion about you. People will care about you. They may cheer for you. They may cheer against you. But I think Trevor is someone who has never shied away from the criticism. And, and I think he has proven that he can dish it out and also take it. He's, he is someone that I think when you come at him with a, with a genuine take, he is not going to run away from it. If you ask him, do you think you're the silent winner, he's going to tell you, yeah, I don't see how you can see it any other way. And that's, that's what he's going to tell you. And if you don't want the answer, don't ask the question. So I, that, I mean, he reminds me a different style in, in some ways, but that was what it was like to, to cover Gary Sheffield. I covered Chef. And if you, if you wanted to ask Chef's perspective on anything in the game, pitchers throwing to hitters, race relations in our country, uh, the way that the media treats athletes. You can ask him any question you want, but get, but get ready with your pen because he's going to tell you something that you're going to have to then write down. I mean, so it, the chef reminds me a lot of Bauer. It's, it's the same mentality, and, and it's the old, the old adage, and, and Gary would say this, if you don't want to know what I have to say about something, don't ask me the question. But once you ask, you better be ready to communicate it properly, and that's, the rule, as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of a, maybe a new school spin on it, but I think, Drew, in many ways, it's still an old school mentality. Yeah, and again, if you want to advance, in my mind, if you want to advance the appeal of this game, we're talking about being less stodgy. If you want to appeal to, you know, I have three boys, they're all you know, college baseball players, if you want to appeal to them... Um, you have to move beyond what may work for the, you know, with all due respect to the retired folks that, that take in ball games in its entirety, uh, you know, starting at 7 o'clock on their, on their couch. And that means, you know what, bat flips, being a little outspoken, being edgy, that's part of where, you know, society has gone, especially with young people. And so uh, I'm okay with it, and I think... All people have to who, who love this game and want to see it grow. You have to embrace that a little bit. You may not like everything, but you got to embrace it. 
Well, exactly, and I think Drew has, has a, 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 I think a final thought on that particular part of the subject. I, I think, I think about a year ago, I was in, I was in Mexico, I was in Japan, um, broadcasting the, the Premier 12, the Olympic qualifying tournament, and and I think that you know, I've, I've been blessed to be able to travel to different countries and, and see the game in different places. I think that the more that you see of of the different baseball cultures that make up the larger uh, baseball world and community. The, the, the less offense you would ever take to anybody behaving as they wish because it's, it, you're a product of your environment and your culture and, and it's an expression of who you are. And so when, when I was in Mexico calling games there, it was different from what it was like calling games in Japan and both were amazing. Both were beautiful cultures that, that welcomed me in and, and you saw players, uh, playing in different styles, speaking in different styles. And that's all great. That's that's what we're supposed to have is a very diverse game. This is one of the most diverse sports in the world. Um, soccer probably still is, is the world sport in many ways, but baseball is right up there. And and I really think that far from having to try to to please everyone in the in in the baseball world by by towing a certain line, just just be who you are. And 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 I, I, if there's one wish I have for the game, addition, obviously let's hope to to be healthy first and foremost and, and, and keep the game on the field with a good uh, labor agreement going forward. It's it's to just understand a little bit of the, the, the life experience of the other people on the field and to not to not judge them for flipping their bat because, you know what, if um, if, if you had a very difficult journey to, to come and play this game and if you signed for $5,000 uh, from, from a small town in, in Venezuela and you had to work five or six years to be able to just get to this point – you might flip your bat too, and I think it's a matter of just having that that empathy for that experience. And similarly for Trevor Bauer, his his own interaction, his own spin on the game. I want him to be himself too. So I, I think we, we we don't need to, nor should we ever pick and choose between who gets to be themselves and who shouldn't. I think we just let everybody be themselves, and I think at, at the end of the day, it's going to result in in the best version of the game that we could possibly find. That's well said and uh, speaks to uh, what I think you and I both would like to see from a societal standpoint, a little more tolerance. Hey, hey, J- hey, John, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you and I could chat, I'm sure, all day uh, on on a number of topics. But I, I, can, I wish you continued success naturally, uh, continued good health with your family. True, same to you and your sons as well. All the best to you for a great holiday season coming up. And I'll know that we're starting to get back to normal when you and I can have a conversation in the press box at Coors, one of my favorite places to be in the baseball world. So look forward to that conversation, and let's hope it happens here in 2021. Again, a big thanks to John Morosi. He is such a sharp guy, and he has done a lot internationally in covering the sport. He's one of those people that when he speaks, whether it's uh, in print or on television um, or the opportunities I have when I run into him, I'm all ears because not only of his connections, but he's able to process information and, and give a good feel as to where the industry's going or maybe a particular team may be going. Um, again, re- really bright guy who's a really good guy also uh, in this uh, industry. So we'll uh, we'll continue to, to try to pick John's brain from time to time on this podcast. 
And uh, we'll see how things play out over the next several months in this uh, most interesting offseason in Major League Baseball. Before I leave you, uh, one thing that, um, you know, I always have to tell you one thing that, that kind of bugs me. And I don't know if bugs me is too strong a phrase for this one. But I hear because as sportscasters, we fall into the trap of, of always saying, hey, that's a big win, big road win, um, or that's a tough home loss for a club. Well, this year in football, it doesn't mean what it does. There's no fan. So when we say, hey, this team has lost three in a row at home, well, yes, not good. You don't want to lose. You certainly don't want to lose in air quotes at home or a team went on the road and won. It's completely different, and I'm reminded of that a few weeks ago. Remember when Green Bay went down uh, to New Orleans and won at the Superdome? And Aaron Rodgers said, man, what a great road went after. And he was really honest, as he typically is. And he said, yeah, he said, but it's it's not the same. He said, there's no crowd noise. He said, we don't have to go on a silent count. We don't have to you know, look to our left and, and try to shout a, a change of play at the line of scrimmage to a wide receiver. He said everybody can hear because there is virtually no crowd noise, which makes it so much easier to play on the road. It makes it uh, less advantageous for the home team because they don't have that 12th man and 70 or 80 or 100 plus thousand people of its college football screaming uh, and and trying to uh, help out the home team. So I thought I would mention that before we get on out of here. Big thanks again to John Morosi and I look forward to visiting with you again next week right here on the Drew Goodman podcast. And uh, you can uh, check us out on Facebook. You can check us out on our website, DrewGoodmanPodcast.com. We appreciate you. And again, look forward to uh, visiting with all of you next week. Stay safe. Stay well. Talk to you soon.